Welcome to Fangthology, a podcast dedicated to obsessively covering the myriad aspects of vampires throughout pop culture, and I'm your host, Catherine Slavova, taking my turn to talk about one of my specialties within our mutual special interest of vampires. Next month, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled co-hosting. Vampires have never felt themselves restricted to one mere genre, let alone a single form of media. Aside from the thousands of novels in more than a dozen genres, and even more combinations of genres, vampire tales have been told through film, television, animation, comics and graphic novels, music, and even theatre. Although, if you listen to our first episode, you're already well aware about how some of that has turned out. The undead are even part of the ever-growing, multi-billion dollar industry that is gaming. They've been featured in platformers like the early Castlevania games, point-and-click adventures like Dracula Origins, and modern action role-playing games such as Vampyr. There's even Dracula Unleashed, a 1993 full-motion video game that's one of the ones where they've got actual recorded footage of people acting it out, where you play as a Texan businessman who's come to London in 1899 to find out the truth surrounding the mystery of your brother Quincy's death. But those aren't the games I'm talking about this episode. Instead, I'm talking about the cult classic RPG that really should have died not long after it was released, but with the aid of a group of devoted followers, refused to meet its final death. Hmm. Clans are just bloodlines, you know. A common root shared and passed on from sire to child. Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines, which I'll refer to simply as Bloodlines from now on, as that's one heck of a mouthful, is a 2004 action role-playing game by Troika Games based on the tabletop role-playing game produced by White Wolf. Think Dungeons & Dragons, but for those who grew up watching The Lost Boys instead of reading The Lord of the Rings. First released in 1991, Vampire the Masquerade is set in a gothic punk version of our own world where vampires have always existed alongside us, their presence and actions hidden in an organised campaign known as The Masquerade. Each vampire is descended from the biblical Cain, who was cursed with vampirism for the crime of murdering his brother. Each vampire shares his curse, albeit weakened the more generations they are removed from him. Where Dungeons & Dragons has classes, Vampire the Masquerade has clans. Groups of vampires who share a common, third-generation ancestor, as well as additional abilities and curses. As of the modern day, there are 13 major clans and many smaller bloodlines, each providing a different theme and style of play. Whatever vampire movie you want to star in, there's a clan for that. That said, your interview with the vampire or Lost Boys could very well turn into what we do in the shadows as you fumble around, trying not to break the titular masquerade of the game and get in trouble with each of the vampire sects. Like the Camarilla, the large and organised sect that maintains the masquerade and vampiric status quo. Here, games of manipulation and struggles for power can last longer than a mortal life. Elders control Camarilla cities, which are led by a prince, 
the title is the same regardless of gender, and with clans represented by primogens. For neonates, that's new vampires, it's practically your job to be sent on quests and perform favours as you try and find the right inn and people to ally with. While it's hard to advance in any job, it's even harder when senior positions are rarely vacated due to everyone being immortal. If you're a kindred, sick and tired of playing Vampire the Capitalism, perhaps you're better off aligning with the Anarchs. Younger, rebellious vampires who respect the ideas of the traditions, but not so much the people who made him uphold them. Anarchs have carved out their own holdings, where people are promoted for having skills other than having managed to live for several centuries. Of course, you can utterly reject the capital T traditions of Camarilla and Anarchs, and throw your lot in with the Sabat, or go full independent, claiming no allegiance to any of the major sects, but those are choices for other games. Much of this lore and setting from the tabletop was brought over into Bloodlines, but obviously many parts were modified to fit this change in format. Not every ability would adapt well or make for interesting gameplay, but it was more important that the spirit was there. Other games, video or tabletop alike, might be more about the combat or exploration, but here it's all about the vibe. The gloom of an abandoned pier as you investigate the body of a murder victim, the electronic beats of a club as you dance with strangers, when you stumble upon a dinner party where all the guests are corpses of golden age stars, and now there's a voice whispering in your ear, but no speaker to be seen anywhere. By the clack-smack cracking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. I don't remember seeing you on the guest list for the dinner party. We're having a rap party for the misfits about forty years late. Cast and crew only, boss. The only thing bigger than the environmental vibe is that of the characters. Bloodlines is a role-playing game, after all. And in Vampire, combat is often as much social and political as it is physical. And with that, you need characters. Pompous princes, fallen stars, a guy who sells stuff out of the back of his truck, a snooty food critic, a sabat leader who likes to crank call nighttime talkback radio. From the largest to the smallest, each character fills their role completely, leaping off the screen thanks to the combination of writing voice acting, and intricate facial animation. If you were to play Bloodlines now, you might recognize the voices of some of the actors, but at the time, only two of them were pretty recognizable names. John DiMaggio and Phil Lamar, both from Futurama, which was still on the air at that time. The rest were smaller, but consistently working actors who had yet to break out. But they would. Fred Tattershaw, Steve Bloom, and Courtney Taylor would go on to have major roles in the Mass Effect trilogy, villain Saren and squadmates Grunt and Jack respectively. Over at Bioware's other big RPG series, Dragon Age, Bloom would be joined by another Bloodlines actor, Greg Ellis, in the role of Cullen Rutherford. Meanwhile, Grey Griffin would continue to prowl the darkness of the night as Catwoman in the Arkham games. Outside of gaming, James Arnold Taylor and Dee Bradley Baker are the animated voices of Obi-Wan Kenobi and every single clone.
What do we have here? Another scrumptious young plaything straight out of life and into my club? You smell new, little girl, like fabric softener do on freshly mowed astroturf. Oh, I'm not frightening you, am I, duckling? But what is a cast in a game without a protagonist to interact with them? In Bloodlines, players take on the role of the fledgling, a newly turned vampire embraced without permission as they explore the world of darkness that is modern Los Angeles. As they carve out their place in these nights, they're also part of a previously hidden war as other sects move in on what is supposed to be the Anarch Free States. Oh, and apparently the end of the world is just around the corner, meaning everyone has become that little more frantic. From haunted hotels to ships stuffed with the bodies of their murdered crew, clubs filled with vampire dancers, and Hollywood cemeteries populated by the immortal, the fledgling finds themselves to be the newest tool in just about every NPC's arsenal. There's a million demands being made, and sometimes it seems like you're being set up to fail. You're stretched thin, and no doubt wondering if you're gonna make it to the end, or if it's all going to blow up in your face. Perhaps that in-game feeling is an echo of what it was like to be part of the team that made Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines. I don't have time for a monologue. Give me the bullet points of what you saw. Development of the game that would eventually become Bloodlines began in 2001 at Troika Games. Founded in 1998 by Tim Kaine, Leonard Boyaski, and Jason Anderson, the trio had previously developed the first title in the critically acclaimed Fallout series. The company's name, Troika, a Russian word meaning three of any kind, was a reference to the three of them, as well as unintentionally foreshadowing the future of the company. Their first game was the RPG Arcanum of Steamworks and Magic Obscura, which was released in 2001. Their second game, released in 2003, was The Temple of Elemental Evil. When Troika approached publisher Activision with their idea of doing a first-person RPG, Activision suggested that they do something with their license for Vampire the Masquerade, which had been a tabletop RPG favourite for a decade. The year before, Activision had released the game Vampire the Masquerade Redemption, which followed a French crusader from his 12th century embrace through to the modern era, and it had done well enough to warrant a sequel. But rather than picking up immediately where Redemption left off, the Troika team looked deeper into the lore of the source material to come up with their own story. The overarching plot elements were all drawn from the RPG, taking the previously established conflict of the Anarchs of California and the encroaching Camarilla and combining it with a possible Gehenna, the final knights of Kindred, where their ancient progenitors rise up to devour them. Los Angeles as a setting had already been explored in the RPG book, namely the 1994 setting book Los Angeles by Night, which outlined the factions, locations, and denizens of the city. Bloodlines wouldn't use any of those characters bar two. The first was Smiling Jack, a Bruja Anak who would take on a role as a sort of mentor to the fledgling, albeit one with his own agenda. Now, we ain't got much time, but I figure somebody should fill you in on the bare bones stuff at least, you know, could save your hide. I did mention John DiMaggio was in this. The second character from the tabletop games is Beckett, a gangrel adventurer anthropologist and signature character for his clan. He's in town investigating that possible Gehenna event, you know, 
that end of the world thing. By the way, as someone who played Bloodlines first and then fell into the tabletop game, I'm disappointed now that another canonical character was not added into the game, even as like a reference. Bella the Mulcavian. Yes, Bella. Almost a mascot to the Anarchs of LA, he is believed to be a Bella Lugosi impersonator whose Malkavian embrace has led him to believe he is Count Dracula himself. When you read up on this character, note his birth and embrace years, then look up a certain Hungarian theatre actor's birth and death dates. Pro tip. In total, Bloodlines contains over 150 characters that we can interact with, and each requiring their own unique animations and movement. In total, Bloodlines contains over 150 characters that the player can potentially interact with. Each has their own unique animations of movement, and the face poser software that was used to animate them for close-ups can give them incredibly realistic expressions at times. These detailed characters create a vibrant and lived-in world populated by real people, each with their own goals and motivations. Unfortunately, it also required a hell of a lot of work, much more than the developers initially estimated, meaning time that would have been allocated to other parts of the system was instead consumed by character animation. Choice is a huge component of any RPG, and Bloodlines is no exception. With seven different clans, each with a different combination of benefits and drawbacks, stories and locations had to be worked into the central narrative in such a way as would permit all playing styles. The Nosferatu, a clan of vampires with monstrous features that cannot be concealed from humanity, had to be able to reach locations without being spotted by mortals. A blood magic-wielding Tremere had to have enough blood resources to not run out of power, or worse, lose themselves to their vampiric hunger. Anyone using a gun had to have enough bullets to keep on shooting, while close-range fighters had to get into that range without dying constantly. These requirements meant that level construction would also have been a massive consumer of resources. Time and people power already in short supply with all of the animations and the handling of all the bugs that just kept on cropping up. Three years into development, it seemed there was no end in sight. No doubt Activision was more than a little frustrated as it kept setting new goals and deadlines. It even threw more money at the project to see if that helped, something that few developers have the luxury of. Employees were working massive amounts of overtime on a regular basis. One person estimated that only two months of the development process was not spent working overtime. Crunch. A thing then, a thing now. Eventually, Activision laid down the law, delivered the game, finished and ready for sale for September 2004. However, as Bloodlines was using Valve's proprietary source code, they were not permitted to release Bloodlines any time before that company's most anticipated new game that used it, Half-Life 2. That mercifully allowed for a little more development time, but it was nowhere near enough to ship what the Troika team believed to be a polished final product. Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines was released on November 16, 2004. The same day as Half-Life 2, and the day before the second installment in the Halo franchise. Two major releases in what Kotaku would 15 years later declare to be, perhaps, one of the best months in video game history. That release date, far earlier than the originally scheduled Spring 2005 date, may not have been the best move, as despite positive reviews, 
It has an impressive Metacritic score of 80. The initial release only sold 75,000 copies. Compare that with Half-Life 2, which sold more than 6.5 million copies in the first four years after it was released. Even compared to Troika's other two games, Bloodlines was not a success. Those two games sold over 362,000 units between them. Troika Games did not outlive its creation for very long. That same month of release, the first wave of employees were made redundant. Those who had remained to patch the game, some of whom working without pay, followed in December 2004. By the start of February 2005, all that remained were the three founders, Anderson, Boyarski, and Kane. Troika Games officially closed its doors on February 24, 2005. So why did Bloodlines fail? While some of it can be blamed on the frankly ridiculous choice to release it in competition with not one, but two of the most anticipated sequels of the decade, there were several other factors at play. Part of it was rooted in issues the company had had long before Bloodlands came out. Technical issues had marked its previous two games, and this continued on with Bloodlands. I love the game, don't get me wrong, but it can be a buggy, glitchy mess at the best of times and completely unplayable at its worst. Some bugs are amusing, like random furniture appearing in the street or sticking out of buildings in one of the hub worlds. Others are potentially horrifying, with character and object models swapping so door handles suddenly take on the shape of a human NPC. And then there are times when NPC dialogue doesn't trigger, preventing the game from advancing, or quests where the game simply crashes. Rapid development of patches by the team after the initial release did some of the much-needed work towards mitigating those technical issues, but it wasn't even close to enough. And with the laying off of all staff by the end of December, there was only so much work that could have been accomplished. Writers and developers who worked on Bloodlines have since spoken about how the game could have used the three to six months of extra time allotted by that original spring 2005 deadline. In addition to resolving all the bugs and smoothing out other more minor technical issues, those crucial few months would have allowed for more work on the story. Because of that condensed development time, some quests were slimmed down and others cut entirely. The most obvious sign of this crunch is in the final act. As the end approaches, everything begins to close off and tunnel, leading you towards the big question of the game. Who do you side with? Which of the groups of vampires who have been ordering you around this whole game do you support? Or do you take the leap into the unknown and flip them the bird on your way out of town? To quote the vampire cabbie who takes you from place to place, Where to? And then the game devolves into just fighting your way through to the bloody end, with your choice mostly deciding just how many factions are out for your head. In a game that, until then, was built on the idea of having multiple ways to complete quests, having your options reduced to smash, stab, or shoot is a massive failing. Say you were like me and made a Toreador, who solved problems through persuasion and seduction. Or you made a Malkavian who just crept invisibly past enemies as you hummed your own theme song in your head. Finding out that all those skills are useless in the end can seem like a frustrating waste of experience points. It's an echo, perhaps, of what many must have been feeling about the game as a whole. This should be where the story ends, right? A video game that is more about lost potential than anything else? 
Perhaps that might have been Bloodline's fate, if not for one little factor. As you should know by now, listeners, vampires never truly die. They always come back. Bloodlines found itself a second life in the hands of modders, who picked up where the original team and their patches left off. At least one of these patches, known as the unofficial patch, is such a widely accepted requirement that if you purchased your copy from GOG, it comes with the patch already installed. While the first patches were basic ones to simply render the game playable, as time went on, the unofficial patch project continued to grow in size and scope. Werner Spahl, a modder better known by the handle West 5, has spent the last 15 years fixing errors and restoring cut content that ranges from missing objects to full-on quests. Part of this is made possible by how unused content remains in the game, hidden but easily discoverable in the file and folder system just like how I found the audio that I've used in this episode. As for the rest of the mods input, well, this is where things can get a little more tricky and difficult to define. Let's use, as an example, a quest called Night at the Library, available only through a variant patch. This is a restored quest, sort of. It never really got beyond a few early features and storylines, but conversations with writer Brian Mitsoda provided a starting point for Spal and other modders to finish it. When you think about it, it's less a restoration of content and more like one author picking up where another left a story incomplete. Or it's fanfic, where the writer follows up on plot threads that the finished product never did. The cycle even continued as the community modded the mods to add additional information, fix popular gripes with villains and dialogue, and more. While many games have huge and transformative modding sections that add to the game's longevity, I'm looking at you Skyrim, they don't really have the bragging rights when it comes to outright saving the game for future generations. Had it not been for these modders making and keeping the game playable, Bloodlines could very well have faded away into the night or worst, be remembered as just another game that killed a studio. The gaming world is notoriously bad in preserving and archiving its work, but thanks to these modders, Bloodlines lives on. Now, it's commonly regarded as a cult classic and flawed masterpiece, regularly appearing on lists of top role-playing games. The famous Ocean House level, in which the player explores an abandoned haunted hotel and is unable to fight against any of the entities inside that wish them harm, is widely recognised as one of the best levels in a horror game, period. And let's not forget the countless Let's Plays and Twitch streams of the games, bringing in new audiences. Even the father of a bridged anime series, Little Karibo, did one. Just in character as Merrick from Yu-Gi-Oh! The Abridged Series. Yeah, that was a thing that happened. When Paradox Interactive purchased White Wolf Publishing and all its properties, including the rights to Bloodlines, in 2015 and announced the release of a new edition of the tabletop game, fans began to wonder if a Bloodline sequel was in the future. After all, Paradox is a video game publisher. You may know them from publishing the Penumbra series or perhaps Cities Skylines. And look, was that a mention of the Vorman sisters in the fifth edition? You know, the twins for whom you did a number of quests in Santa Monica? No doubt fueling the fire was the launch of the Geek and Sundry series Ally by Night, a live play with World of Darkness brand marketing manager Jason Carl as storyteller. 
This live play series brought back many notable Bloodlines characters, including Baron Isaac Abrams, Nosferatu Provincian Gary Golden, and respected Anarch, Nines Rodriguez. Further speculation grew with the release of the dating app Tender by Paradox. Most suspected the app, which asked for information on the user's blood, amongst other things, was part of an ARG related to a Bloodline sequel. Then it happened. On March 21, 2019, the announcement came. After 15 years, Bloodlines 2 was officially happening. And not just happening, but with Brian Mitsoda returning as lead writer. Then it came out that Bloodlines 2 had been developed alongside the 5th edition of the tabletop game, promising an experience similar to that source material. Trailers were released, some pretty damn good ones too. And Damsel from Bloodlines 1 seemed set to return. And was that expansion hinting at werewolves? It was all so exciting, and in March 2020 it would all be ours. Well, sometime in 2020. Then 2021. Okay, definitely not the first half of 2021. Then, after losing Mitsoda, other members of the team, and changing developers, the game was delayed to... not 2021. Well, shit. It seems that where Toreador are obsessed with beauty, where Bruja are cursed with temper and rage, where Ventru are cursed by their own refined tastes, Bloodlines games are doomed to countless problems in development. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fangthology. This episode was written, performed, and edited all by me, Catherine Slavova. If you miss Kaylee and her genius, don't worry, she'll be back for next month. Uh, if you like this episode, please like, share, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. More information and links to our research can be found on our website, fangthology.com. For bite-sized trivia and miscellany, check out our Twitter and Instagram accounts, also by the name of Fangthology. And perhaps, if you're interested, next time I boot up Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines, I'll stream it on Twitch. If anyone is actually interested in watching that. Anyway, thanks again for listening to me ramble on about one of my favourite video games of all times. We will see you next month. And until then, have fun. Well, in my story, it's not like about garlic and bats, okay? It's about vampire societies and stuff. You know, like, what would vampires be really all about? I mean, how do they blend into society without being discovered?